1: It's rare that a director will ever admit to their mistakes. After all, pride is a terrible sin, and when so many people have put so much work into making a movie, it's pretty difficult to admit that you got something wrong. But sometimes, though, that person in charge of the film will make a mistake, or indeed mistakes, that gnaw away at them until they just have to do something about it. Whether it's immediately, decades later, or continuously meddling over the years, going above and beyond in the name of fixing their own work, and sometimes this has some seriously mixed results. So let's take a look at them as I'm Jules, this is WhatCulture.com, and these are seven directors who went to extraordinary lengths to fix past mistakes. Number 7. Spike Lee made She's Gotta Have It into a TV series to fix the rape scene Released back in 1986, She's Gotta Have It announced Spike Lee as an important, authentic voice in US cinema. But while the movie's messaging and plot were largely strong, especially for the era, the writer-director made what he considers the biggest mistake of his career with one particular scene. The movie sees protagonist Nola seeing three different men, and one of them, Jamie, ends up raping her, while also mocking her at the same time. It is a badly handled sequence, which Lee himself admitted when he was talking to Deadline. If I was able to have any do-overs, that would be it. It was just totally stupid. I was immature, it made light of rape, and it's the one thing I would take back. Now, while the rape scene isn't the explicit reason that Lee made the TV version of She's Gotta Have It, it likely played a part in his motivation, and the series did offer him the opportunity to write that wrong. It would have been quite easy for the show to simply avoid it altogether, given the controversy of the movie's version, but Lee instead opts to depict a man attempting to assault Nola in this take. It's not as violent as the movie, but the TV series nevertheless makes sure to explore the impact that harassment and abuse have upon the person, in a considered and much more timely fashion. Number 6. John Hughes Made Some Kind of Wonderful to Have the Pretty in Pink Ending He Wanted Although he didn't direct it, Pretty in Pink is regarded as one of the classic John Hughes high school movies, with it serving as a generational touchstone and widely acclaimed by critics and audiences. Unless, of course, you were Hughes himself, who wasn't happy with the version that made it to cinemas. In his original take, Andy ended the movie with her best friend Ducky, but this ending tested badly with audiences, and so the studio instead mandated the change that she get together with the more traditional, lead-type Blaine. As a response, Hughes went on to make some kind of wonderful, swapping the genders around but telling this story that he wanted to in Pretty in Pink. Keith, being the Andy of this story, falls in love with his tomboyish best friend Watts rather than the most popular girl-in-school Amanda. To really hammer home the point, Hughes had wanted Molly Ringwald to star, but she ultimately turned down the project. Number 5. Mikael Haneke made a shot-for-shot remake of Funny Games Mikael Haneke intended for his 1997 effort Funny Games to be set in the United States, but after he was unable to secure enough funding, he was forced to set it in Austria instead, and the film failed to find much of an audience. A decade later, and with the director having carved out a much bigger reputation thanks to the likes of The Piano Teacher and Cachet, decided to have another go at the Funny Games story, which sees a family at a lake house victimised by intruders. This time, around. He did set the movie in America, though, with a new cast and crew, including Naomi Watts and Tim Roth. However, he still used the same house to shoot in, with the 2007 version becoming a shot-for-shot remake of the 1997 one. But still, unfortunately, it didn't get a better reception. Shame. Number 4. Ridley Scott's final Blade Runner cut came 25 years later now, Blade Runner is nowadays regarded as a seminal sci-fi movie, but it wasn't actually that well received upon release. The movie divided critics, underperformed at the box office, and the director wouldn't get to release a version that he was completely happy with until 25 years later. The original cut of the movie, known as the work print prototype version, had to undergo several studio-mandated changes after a negative response, which led to the San Diego sneak preview and then the theatrical. Theatrical release, which included, amongst other things, an enforced happy ending. An international version with some differences was also released, and then a toned-down broadcast version aired in 1986. A director's cut was released in 1992, which Scott approved of, but you know what? Didn't actually have a hand in making himself. Instead, he had to wait until 2007, after overcoming a number of legal and financial issues, before he could release his version of the final cut, which was restored from the original negative and included the full breadth of Scott's vision. 3. Ridley Scott also killed off Shaw and made Covenant much more alieny. <sighs> Ridley Scott is never happy, is he? The other big franchise of his career has spawned even more headaches than Blade Runner, and he's constantly going back to the drawing board to add more bits in to make more sense of the mess that the Alien's franchise now is. Even with Prometheus acting as a more philosophical approach to things and being an attempt to look at why we are all here in the universe, the end result was not entirely successful, especially not to people who went in expecting it to be a true Alien prequel. As a result, Scott made a sequel that tried to bridge the gap between Prometheus and Alien, but like largely undid a lot of the former. We had the leads being unceremoniously killed off, and so too were the engineers, it seemed. In came a xenomorph, a neomorph, and a far more concentrated effort on making this a true alien movie. If not for Michael Fassbender's David, it'd be like Prometheus never happened, which is clearly what Ridley Scott wanted, apparently. number 2. George Lucas Kept on Changing the Star Wars Trilogy there are no discernible mistakes in the original Star Wars trilogy, which makes it stand as one of the finest cinematic trios ever made, but you know what? Try telling that to George Lucas. The man who created the saga is also the one who'd make things worse by trying to make things better with multiple special editions, with an array of changes big and small over the years that he's just kept tinkering away with. With a firm belief that the films weren't as good as they could and should have been due to budgetary constraints and technological limitations, Lucas made the first significant changes with a re release in 1997. The most notable, of course, was having Greedo shoot beforehand, and gradually over the years, further alterations were made in 2004 and again in 2011, where other irksome details were switched around, such as Sebastian Shaw being replaced by Hayden Christensen and Darth Vader yelling, "No!" when killing the Emperor. Some were just baffled in how small and pointless they seemed, like adding some rocks in front of R2-D2. Lucas put a lot of time and energy into creating these special editions, and even more into defending them after the backlash that still persists to this day and number 1 brian singer rewrote x men continuity after the last stand after one solid movie and then a really excellent one, the first X-Men trilogy went out with a bit of a whimper thanks to The Last Stand, which was helmed by Brett Ratner after Bryan Singer left the franchise to direct Superman Returns. After some mistakes all-round then, Singer returned to the franchise in 2014 for days of future past, after Matthew Vaughn, who himself was set to direct The Last Stand, had brought in a new cast with First Class. Singer used the time-travel aspects of the story not only to blend the original and new cast together, but also to completely changed the timeline of the movies, meaning that the events of The Last Stand didn't actually happen in the current continuity, even at the expense of his own original movies as well. Singer even joked about this a couple of years ago, telling Fandango, I might not have killed all those characters. But that's what's so fun about Days of Future Past. We had a joke on set. Hey, Brian, you're not only directing Days of Future Past, you're actually living it. I was going back and making changes in history. With X-Men The Last Stand, I don't fault anyone, including myself. It was just that circumstance didn't allow for it to happen.